Hello, I'm Byron Reese. I am the host of Voices in AI. If you're interested in the topics we discuss in these podcasts, I'd urge you to check out my newest book. It's called The Fourth Age. It's about conscious computers and artificial intelligence and the future of work and jobs and all of the topics we cover here on Voices in AI. It comes out uh, next spring, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever else you order books from. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, uh, our guest is Rudina Ciceri. She is the founding and manager partner over at Glasswing Ventures. She's also entrepreneur in residence at Harvard Business School, and she holds an MBA from that same institution. Welcome to the show, Rudina. Hello, Byron. Thank you for having me. You wrote a really good piece for GigaOM, as a matter of fact, about uh, it was your, your kind of advice to startups. Uh, don't say you're doing AI just to, you know, have, have the buzzwords on the slide. You better be able to say what you're really doing. Can you kind of, what is your operational definition of artificial intelligence? And can you kind of expand on that theme? Because I think it's really good advice. Um, sure, happy to. I mean, AI, as I think of it as a wave of disruption, um, has become such a such a popular <laughs> term. And I think there are definitional challenges in the market. From my perspective, and at the very, very highest level, AI is nothing else than having um, technology, largely computers and software, um, possess or have some level of intelligence that mirrors that of humans. So is as basic as one would imagine it to be by the very name artificial intelligence. Where I think we are in the AI, you know, maturity curve, if, if one wants to express it in such a form, is really we are seeing the early days of AI and the impact it is having and will have going forward, but really what I would call narrow AI, in that um, we are not at a point where um, machines in general can operate the same level of diversity and complexity as the human mind, but for narrow purposes or in a narrow function for, for a number of areas across enterprise and consumer businesses, um, AI can be really transformational, even narrow AI. Um, expressed differently, the uh, we think of AI as anything such as visual um, recognition, social cognition, um, speech recognition, and of course underpinning it any level of machine learning with a particular interest as one can imagine around deep learning. I hope that helps. No, that's, that's wonderful. So what would, be, what would be a case of a company, a fictitious company? Like you, you're, you're an investor, so you get pitches all the time and you're bound to um, see ones where the term is used and it's really just in there to play buzzword bingo and all, all of that. What would be a, something that, because your definition that it's doing things humans would normally do, that, that kind of takes me back to my cat food bowl that fills itself up when it's empty. It's doing that for me. It's weighing it and, so that I don't, you know, I used to do it. Now the computer does it. But surely that, that isn't, if you saw that in a business case, we have an AI cat food bowl. Uh, that really isn't AI or is it? And then you've got things like the Nest, which is a learning system. I mean, it learns as you do it and yours is eventually going to be different than mine. And so that's, I think it's kind of clearly in the AI camp. What would be a case of something that it's like you would see it in a business case and just roll your eyes? 
Right, so I think in just to address your example, then I'll give you a few illustrations. I think in your example of the um, cat food plate or whatnot, I think you're describing automation much more than AI, and you can automate it because it's very prescriptive. If, it, if it, A takes place, then do B. If C takes place, then do D. I think that's very different AI than AI. I think when 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 technologies and products are leveraging artificial intelligence, you are really looking for a learning capability. Although, to be perfectly honest, even within the world of artificial intelligence, researchers don't agree on whether learning in and of its own qualifies as AI. But coming back to the everyday um, applications, I think much like the human mind learns, artificial intelligence, whatever facet of it, we are looking for some level of learning for sure as a differentiator. To then um, address your question head on, my goodness, I mean, I, we're seeing AI disrupt all facets from cybersecurity and MarTech to IT and HR to new robotics platforms um, and the, so running the whole gamut. Um, why don't I give you a perfect example that's a real example and I can give you the name of a portfolio company so we make it even more practical and less hypothetical. So one of my recent investments is a company called Tala. And um, Tala is taking advantage of natural language processing capabilities for the HR and IT um, organizations in particular, where it is automating lower level tickets, you know, Q&A, for issues that an employee may have maybe an outage of email or some other question around an HR benefit. And instead of having a human address the question, um, it is actually the bot that's addressing the question. And over time, the bot is initially augmenting if, if, it, uh, if the question is too complex and the bot can only take the answer so far and can't fully address the particular question, then a human becomes involved, but the bot is learning so that when the second person has a similar question, um, the bot can actually um, address it and take uh, address it fully. In that instance, you have both natural language processing um, and a lot of learning because not two humans ask the very same question. And even if we are asking the same question, uh, we do not ask it in the same manner. That's the beauty of our species. Um, so there's a lot of learning that goes on in that regard. And of course, it's also the case that it's um, driving productivity and augmentation. Does that illustrate, does it address your question, Byron? Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm really curious about that particular, that's Rob May's company, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I know Rob. He's a, he was, um, he's, he's, a, he's a brilliant guy. Uh, and Phenomenal. I, so my question um, Specifically with that, you know, as, as we are able to automate more things uh, at a human level, like customer service inquiries, how important do you think it is that the end-to-end -end user knows that they're talking to a bot of some kind as opposed to a person? And when you say no, are you are you are you trying to get at the societal norm of what of are, yeah. is, is this a normative question? Exactly. Like okay, if 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 I ask, you know, uh, where is your FAQ? And Julia, in air quotes here, says, here, oh, our FAQ is located here. And there was no human involved. How important is it that I, as an end user, know that Julia is, that it's called Julia Bot, not Julia? 
I think I think I think disclosure is always best served. There's nothing to be hidden. There's nothing um, that's occurring that's untoward. So in that regard, I would personally advocate for erring on the side of disclosure rather than not, especially if there is learning involved, which means observing as well on the part of the bot. I think it would be important. I do also think that we're in we're so such in the early days of. Um, this type of technology is being adopted, adopted and on the way to becoming mass pervasive that the best practices and norms have yet to be established. Where I suspect you will see both, as I call the New York Times risk, quote unquote, as in, you know, when, when we'll have a lot more discussions around what's an acceptable norm and what's right and wrong in this emerging paradigm is when we read a story where something went uh, the wrong way. And then we will all weigh in and then the bodies will come together and we as a society will, will have norms. But I think fundamentally erring on the side of disclosure serves a company well at all times. And so you're an investor. You see all kinds of, of uh, businesses coming along. What, do you have an investment thesis? Like I'm really interested in artificial intelligence applied to enterprises yep. or what, what is your thesis? <laughs> So we refer to us to our thesis. Not only do we have a thesis, but I think we have a, a good name for it to capture it. So we refer to it as intelligent connect and protect, where in our firm strategy, we are investing in startups that are really uh, disrupting in a positive manner and revolutionizing the enterprise from sales tech and martech to um, you know pure IT and data around platforms, be those software platforms or robotics and the likes, as well as cybersecurity and infrastructure. So that first part of enterprise and platforms is the connect world, and then the cybersecurity and infrastructure is the protection of that ecosystem. The reason why we don't just call it um, connect and protect is because in every single startup that we invest, core to our strategy is the utilization or taking advantage of artificial intelligence. So that's the intelligent part in um, in, in describing or in capturing our thesis. So, so differently, um, we fundamentally believe that a startup, um, a technology startup in this day and age that's not leveraging some form of machine learning, some facet of AI, it's putting itself in a, at a disadvantage from day one. In fact, you know, put more directly, um, it becomes legacy from the get-go because from a performance point of view, from a, um, it manifests itself across the board, but the product, legacy products or products without any kind of learning and AI just won't be able to keep up and outperform um, their peers that do. So you're, you're based in Boston. Are you doing most of your investing on the East Coast? For the most part, correct. Yes. And and is there East Coast any, and another any... sorry East Coast and other um, pockets um, of opportunity where our strategy holds. And so you see some interesting things in areas like Atlanta and with with security, and then even in certain parts of Europe like London, Berlin, Munich, etc. But yes. How do you think? You know, is is. Are, are, are things being, are AI being used for different things on the East Coast than what we think of in Silicon Valley? And if so, like, 
can you go into that a little more? Like, where do you see yeah. pockets, uh, pockets that are that are doing different things? Look, I think AI is is a massive wave, and I think we would be in our own bubble if we thought that it was divided by certain costs. Where I think it manifests itself, however, so I think it's impacting and it's impacting at a global level, to be honest, rather than in our own. Um, microcosms, but where I do think you see a difference is in the concentration of the talent pool um, around AI and especially deep learning. Because keep in mind, um, the, the notion of specializing in machine learning or visual cognition, but particularly maybe deep learning is the best example, um, didn't exist before, what, 2012? You, you know, we talk a lot about data scientists. But the true data scientists or machine learning experts are very, very hard to come by because it is in many ways driven by the explosion in data and then sort of the maturity that the whole deep learning field is achieving to be um, commercializable or for the techniques to be used in real products. It's all very new in the last five to, if you want to be generous, uh, 10 years. So from that perspective, where talent is concentrated makes a difference. Um, so to come back to how maybe the costs compare, I think we'll see AI companies across the board. I do think, and I'm very optimistic um, in that we have quite a bit of concentration of AI through the universities on the East Coast. I think of MIT and Carnegie Mellon and Cornell and what we're seeing come out of Harvard and BU on the NLP side. So across the universities, um, just very, very deep pockets of talent. And I think that manifests itself both with the number and high quality of AI-enabled products and startups that we're seeing um, get launched, but also for the what one would call the incumbents, um, such as Facebook and Amazon and Google and Uber, and the list goes on. If you look closely at where their AI teams are, even though um, I just all the companies I just mentioned for the most part are headquartered in the valley and in the case of Amazon in Seattle, um, their talent is actually their AI concentrations on the East Coast, probably most notably Facebook's New York office or if AI is headquartered in New York. So combine that talent concentration with also the markets that we in particular focus with our strategy around the enterprise where the East Coast has always had and continues to have an advantage, I think it's an interesting moment in time. And, and I assume with the concentration of government on the East Coast and finance on the East Coast, you see more technologies like security um, and, and those sorts of things. Specifically with security, do you think that, so there's been this game that goes back and forth for thousands of years between people who um, make codes and people who break them. And nobody's ever really come to an agreement about who has the harder job. Can you make an unbreakable code? Can, you break, can it be broken? Um, and that just kind of goes back and forth. And if you think about it, that's analogous to security. Do you think AI helps those who want to violate security or those who want to defend against it more right now? I think I think AI will play an important role in defending and securing the ecosystem. And the reason I say that is because in this day and age, with the exploding number of devices and pervasive connectivity everywhere, you know, translated in 
cybersecurity lingo um, with an increasing number of endpoints, the points of the areas of vulnerability, whether it is um, at the network level and device level, or whether it is at the data and identity levels, the connectivity in and of its own has made us a lot more vulnerable, which is uh, sort of the paradigm we live in. Where I think AI and machine learning can be true differentiators is that um, not only going to be leveraged again for the for the various software solutions um, to continuously learn, but also on the predictive side. Um, to start, you know, to get to the point where an attack is being predicted, a vulnerability attack is being predicted before it actually takes place, or there are certain patterns that help the enterprise and help the CISO hone in on, on their vulnerability from assessment to time of attack at, or during the attack and then post-attack. So I do think that um, AI is a really meaningful differentiator for cybersecurity. How do you think the, you know, you alluded just a moment ago to the lack of talent and there just aren't enough people who are just well-versed in a lot of these topics. How does that shake out? Do you think it's the fact that we will um, use artificial intelligence to make up for those, for that lack of um, the shortage of people with the skills? Or do you think that universities are going to produce uh, an enormous you know, we're going to have a surge of new talent coming in. Like, how do we solve that? Because AI, you know, the, the, you look out your window and almost everything you see, you could, you could figure out how I could use data to study that and make it better. And so it's kind of, you know, a, a blue ocean. So what do you think is going to happen in the talent marketplace to kind of solve for that? Yeah, I mean, AI eventually will be a layer. You're absolutely right. So from that perspective, um, there, I, I cannot come up with an area where I, where AI will not play a role. Um, broadly put, and and for the long, for the foreseeable future, and for a long time in the future. In terms of the talent challenge, the talent challenge is. Um, let me address your question two twofold. The talent challenge, or shortage challenge that we have right now stems from the fact that it's a new, a relatively new field or a, a re the resurgence of the field and the ability to now actually deploy it in the real world and then, you know, commercialize it is what's driving this demand. So it's the demand that has spurred and of course the, the supply for that adjustment to take place, the supply of talent, if I can speak of it in that manner, um, is not there. So it's, it's a bit of a matter of market timing. Um, at one level, so for for sure we will see much many more you know students enter the field, many more students um, specialized and get trained uh, in in machine learning. Then the real question becomes: um, Will a, a part of their functions be automated? So will we need fewer humans to to perform the same functions? Which I think was the second part of your question, if I understood it correctly. Yes. I, I think we're in a phase of augmentation. And what I mean by that is, we've seen this in the past. Think about this, Byron. How did um, developers code, you know, go back 10, 15 years ago? Largely in different languages, but largely from the ground up. How do they code today? I don't know of any developer who doesn't use the tools available to, to, to get a quick, you know, spin up and to ramp up quickly. AI and machine learning are no different. Not every company is going to build their own neural nets. Quite the opposite. A lot of them will 
um, use what's open source and available out there in the market or what's com commercialized for their needs. They might do some customization on top, but and then and then they will focus on what the product they're building. So the fact that you will see part of the machine learning function that's being performed by the data scientists be somewhat automated it should come as no surprise and that has nothing to do with AI that has to do with how you know driving efficiencies and getting tools and getting um, having access to open source support um, if you will I think down the road where um, AI plays a role both in augmentation and then um, down the road in automation we will what I believe are definitional changes to what it means to be in a certain profession. For example, I think a medical doctor of the future might look um, from a day-to-day -day activity point of view very differently than what we perceive a doctor's role to be from interaction to what they're trained in. I think there there is there are some questions and there is a discussion to be had. The fact that a machine learning expert, data scientist, which by the way are not the same thing, but let's for the sake of argument, I'm using them interchangeably. Um, the fact that they're going to use tools and they don't start from scratch, and there's some level of automation in um, AI learning that they leverage, that is par for the course. Well, I kind of ask the question because, <clears throat> on the one hand. Uh, you hear people say, everyone, and they literally, so when I give talks on, on these topics, especially on artificial intelligence, I always get asked the question, you know, what should I or what should my children study uh, to remain employable in the future? Because, you know, the, and we'll talk about that in a minute, about how AI kind of shakes up the, all of that. So, and there are two kind of extreme ends on that. So one school of thought says everyone in school should learn how to code, everyone. It's just like one of the three R's, but it starts with a C. And everyone should learn to code. And then uh, Mark Cuban went at South by Southwest here in Austin said um, that the first trillionaires are going to be from AI companies because it offers that much, uh, you know, it's, it's the ability to make better decisions, right? And he said if he were coming up today, he would study philosophy uh, because it's going to be that kind of thinking that allows you to use these technologies and to understand kind of how to apply them and whatnot. So on that spectrum of everyone should code or no, if, no, we, we might just end up making a glut of people uh, to code and what we really need are, are people to think about how to use these technologies and so forth. What, what would you say to that? So it, it's my true, I have a four-year-old daughter, so I hope you better believe that I think about this, this topic quite a bit. My view is that AI is an enabler, is a tool for us as a society to augment and automate the mundane and give us more ability and more room for creativity and different thinking. So I would, I would hope to God that the students of the future will study philosophy, they will study math, they will study the arts, they will study all the sciences that we know, and then some uh, creativity of thinking and diversity of thinking will remain the most precious asset we have, in my view. I do think that much like children today study the core sciences 
of math and, you know, the hard sciences as well of math and in chemistry and biology, um, as they do with literature, I do think that part of the core curriculum will probably be some form of, you know, from advanced data statistics to into machine learning um, or, you know, some level of maybe even computer sciences. So we will see some technology training that goes on and becomes core. But I think that is a very, very, very different discussion than everybody should study computer science or everybody, you know, looking forward should be a roboticist or um, machine learning expert or AI expert. Uh, we need all the differentiation in thinking that we can get. And philosophy does matter because what we do today uh, shapes the present and the society in the future. And do you think, with back to the talent question, do you think that, the, and, and to your point about uh, um, someone who's well-versed in machine learning, um, which is different than data science, as you were saying, do you think those jobs are very difficult? And it's all, we're always going to have kind of a shortage of them because they're they're just really hard, or do you think it's just the case that we haven't really taught them that much, and that you know they're not any harder than coding in C or something? Um, do you which what which of those two things do you think it is? Oh, I, I think it's a, a bit more the latter than the former. That we it's a, it's a relatively new field. I mean, it's asking the question: math and and you know, quants matter in in this area, and passion matters. But I think. Uh, the current, it's a new field, so it's hard to make judgment calls that, that it will be talent that has certain predisposition around, you know, like I said, math and quants, yes, for sure, but I, I do think that the effects or the shortage that we experience has a lot more to do with the newness of the field like, uh, rather than the lack of interest or the lack of qualified or talent or lack of aptitude. You know, one thing, um, when I, when people say, how can I spot a place to use artificial intelligence in my enterprise? Um, one thing I say is find things that look like games because every time AI, you know, AI beats and wins in chess and, and beats Ken Jennings and Jeopardy and uh, Lisa Dole and, and Go and the, the games are really neat because they're these very constrained universes with these definable rules and clear objectives. Um, and so, you know, uh, who, when you have, uh, who, and you even mentioned HR that when your list of all the things it was going to affect. So uh, I'll use that one. When you have a bunch of resumes and you have hired some people that get great performance reviews and some people that don't. And so those are, you can think of them as, you know, points or whatever, that you can then uh, look at that as a big game. And you can go in and try to predict, you know. And you can go into each part of an enterprise and say, what looks like a game here? Do you, do you have a kind of a, a rule like that or just kind of a guiding um, metaphor in your own mind of how do you, because you see all these business plans and, and right. <laughs> is, there, is there something like that that you're kind of looking for? Okay, so again, let me, there were several questions embedded in there, so let me see if I can decouple a couple of them. So I think any area where that is data-driven, of any, any facets of the enterprise that is data-driven or that there is information, I think you can leverage learning and narrow AI for predictive. So you use some of the keywords. 
if there are opportunities for optimization, if there are areas where um, analytics are involved, you know, move away from statistical models, basic statistical models, and um, you can start leveraging AI. Um, I think where there is room for efficiency and automation, you can leverage it. So I would be hard pressed to, it's, it's hard not to find an area where you can leverage it. The question is, where can you create most value? So for example, um, if you are on the forefront of an enterprise on the sales side, um, can you leverage AI? Of course you can, not all potential customer perspective customers are created equal. There are better funnels, uh, you can leverage predictives. The more data and the better data you have, clearly the better are the outcomes. Um, at the end of the day, your neural nets are, will perform as well as the, the data you put in, junk in, junk out. Um, so that's one facet. If you're looking on the marketing and technology side, think about what, how one can leverage advertising or machine learning for and predictives around advertising, particularly on the programmatic side, so that you're personalizing your engagement and whichever capacity with your, um, with your consumer or your buyer. I mean, we can go down the list, Byron. I think uh, the better question is, what are the lower hanging fruits that I can start taking advantage of AI right away and which ones will I wait on rather than um, do I have any areas? If the particular manager or business person can't find any areas, I think they're, they're missing the big picture and, and the day-to-day -day execution. And I remember, you know, in the 90s when the web, the, the consumer web became a big thing and companies had a web department and, you know, and, and then they had a web strategy and, and now, that's not really a thing. It's like the internet is part of your business. Yep. And it's, and do you think we're like that with artificial intelligence that it's siloed now in businesses where it's, where it's siloed now, but that eventually there, we won't talk about it the way we're talking about it now. I do. I do think so. I think um, I often get question, uh, sort of, well, well, the very same question, how do I think AI will shape up? And I think AI will be a layer much like, the internet has become a layer. I absolutely do. I think we will see tools and capabilities, but it, it will be ever pervasive. Yes. So s since AIs are only as good as the data you train them on, do you think that companies that are in unique positions to capture data, um, does, that, does that seem monopolistic to you that certain companies are, are in, this, in, in a place where they get constantly more and more and more data, which they can therefore use to make their business stronger and stronger and stronger. And that it's hard for new entrants to come in because they don't have access to the data and can't really get it. Do you, do you think that data monopolies will become a kind of a thing and that we'll have to think about how do you regulate them or how do you, how do you make them available or, or is that not likely? I think, I think data is for sure, a, a position of data is for sure a barrier to entry in the market. And I do think that the current incumbents, probably more than we've ever seen before, have, have built these um, barriers to entry by amalgamating the data. How it will shake out, first of all, two thoughts. One, um, even though they have, uh, they have amassed huge amounts of data with this whole pervasive connectivity and devices on and connectivity spreading throughout and devices on all the time, even the large incumbents 
are only scratching the surface on a relative basis to the amount of data we are generating and and the growth that we will continue to see on the data side. So even though it feels oligarchy-like, maybe not quite monopolistic, um, that uh, the big players have so much data, I think we're even gener we're generating even more data um, going forward. So that's sort of at the highest level. Um, I do think that, um, particularly in the consumer side, something needs to be done around um, consumers taking control of their data. I think brands and advertisers have been squatting on consumer data with very little in, in return for us. So I, I do, and I think again, one can leverage AI and predictive in that regard, either to compensate, whether it's through an experience or in some other form, consumers for their personal private data being used, and probably some form of regulation and again, I don't know if it is at an industry standard level or more regulatory bodies involved. I'm not sure if you follow Tim, Sir Timothy Berners-Lee, who invented the web, but um, he does talk a lot about data centralization. I think um, there is quite uh, something quite substantive in his statements around decentralizing the web and, and all the data and giving consumers to say. And I think we're seeing a bit of a um, groundswell in that regard. How it will manifest itself, I'm not quite sure, but I, I do think that the discussion around data will remain very relevant and become even more important as the number of data increases and, and as it becomes critical in a barrier to entry for future businesses. And so where do you think, with regard to privacy and AI, do you think that we are just in a post-privacy world and because so much of what you do is recorded one way or the other, that data just exists and, and, and we'll eventually get used to that. Um, or do you think people are always going to insist on kind of the protections that you're talking about and, and ways to guarantee their anonymity and that the technology will actually be used to, to, to help promote privacy, not to uh, wear, it, wear it down. I, I, think, I think we haven't given up on privacy. I think um, well, the definition of privacy might have changed, especially with the, uh, the millennials as they're you know, in self-expression and the, the social norms that they have been driving and largely the rest of the population has adopted. Um, so I would say we have a redefinition of privacy, but not for sure we haven't given up on them. And even the younger generations who often get accused of doing so, and you don't need to take my word on it, look at what happened with Snap. Um, the value prop was that basically in the early days, the it was really almost twins, but let's just say it was teenagers, um, were were on Snapchat, and the, what they were doing is, uh, quote unquote, borderline misbehavior because it was going to go away, and they wouldn't leave a footprint. So they cared enough about the footprint and and this sort of value prop around it disappears, so your privacy or your behavior uh, does not become exposed to the broader world out there mattered. And in my view, it was a critical factor. Um, in in the growth that the company saw. So we have clear evidence um, that it mattered. And I think 
you'd be hard pressed to find people, I'm sure they exist, but I think they're in the minority that would say, oh, I don't care, put all of my data um, 24 seven, let the world know what I'm up to. Even even for on the exhi exhibitionist side, I think there's a limit to that. So we care privacy about privacy. What how we define it today, I suspect, is very different than um, how we defined it in the past, and that is something that's still a bit more nebulous. I I completely agree with that. I mean, I uh, my experience with with young people is they're 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 onto it, like they understand it better, and they they are all about, you know, how do I, how do I, anyway, I, I completely agree with all of that. So, what about what about European efforts? Um, the the right to know why that if an artificial intelligence makes a decision that impacts your life, like gives you a loan or doesn't, that uh, you need you have the right to know how that conclusion was made and and how does that work in a world of you know neural nets where it, there may not be a why that's understandable kind of in, in plain english um do you think that, well, that 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 is going to hold up the development of black box systems or that that's just kind of a passing fad or what are your thoughts on that well, I think uh, I think Europe has always been um, on the side of protecting consumers. I mean, we're just speaking about privacy and look at what they are doing with um, GDPR and um, you know what's coming to market from from the data point of view on the topic we were just wrapping up. But um, look, I think as we as we gain a better understanding of AI and as the field matures. If we hide behind, we don't quite know how the decision was made, and we may not fully comprehend, but um, if we hide behind the, oh, it's hard to explain and people can't understand it, I think at some point it becomes a cop-out. I think the, we may not need to go and, and educate everyone on how neural nets and deep learning performs, but I think you can, you can talk about the fundamentals of what are the drivers, how are they interacting with each other, and at a minimum, you can give the consumer some basic level of understanding as to where they probably outperformed or underperformed. You know, it reminds me of in tech, we used to use three-letter acronyms in, in talking to each other and making everybody feel like they were less intelligent than the rest of the world. I think we don't need to go into the science of artificial intelligence machine learning to help consumers understand how loan decisions were made. Because guess what? If we can't explain it to the consumer, the person on the other side that's managing the relationship will not understand it themselves. So we have to but, be able, go ahead. No, no, I, I think you're right. But if, if you ask Google, why did this page come up number one for this search? The answer we don't know uh, is perfectly, understandable that it's you know 600 different algorithms go into how they rank pages or whatever the number is you know it's big and why why is this page number one and this page number two that they they then they may not know or or they may take some effort to to drill in specifically as to why but at some level they can tell you what some of the drivers underlying drivers were 
behind the ranking or how the ranking algorithms took place, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, Byron, what, what you and I are going back and forth on is, in my view, it's a level of granularity question rather than can they or can they not. Fair it's enough. not a yes or no. It's a granularity level question. So there's a lot of fear in the world around the effect that artificial intelligence is going to have on, on people. And one of the, one of the, the fear areas is um, the effect on jobs. And as you yes. know, there's kind of three, three narratives. One narrative is that there are some people who don't have um, a lot of tr tra training and things that machines can't do. And the machines are eventually going to take their jobs and they'll be able to do these really simple jobs and that will have some portion of the population that's permanently unemployed, like a permanent Great Depression. Then there's a school of thought that says, oh, no, 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 everybody, everybody's replaceable by a machine, that eventually they're gonna to get to a point where they can learn something new faster than a human, and then we're all out of work. And then there's a third group that says, uh, no, 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 we're not gonna have any unemployment because uh, we've had disruptive technologies, electricity, replacing um, animals with machines, and steam and these really disruptive technologies and unemployment never spiked because of those. All that happens is people learn how to use those tools to increase their own productivity. So my question to you is, which of those three narratives, or is there a fourth one, uh, do you identify with? So I would say I identify only in part with the, with the um, last narrative. I do think we will see job displacement. I do think we'll see the job displacement in categories of workers that we would have normally considered highly skilled. So in my view, what's different about the paradigm we are in vis-a-vis, -vis, let's say, uh, the Industrial Revolution is that it is not the lowest the sort of trained workers or the highly specialized workers, if you think about artisanal type workers back in the day, um, that get dis that get um, displaced out of their roles and and replaced um, through automation and replaced by machines in the industrial revolution or here by technology in the, the AI paradigm. I think um, I think with the current paradigm and what's tricky is that the upper the middle class and the upper middle class gets impacted as much as the less trained um, blue skilled workers. So again. A, uh, there will be medical doctors, there will be attorneys, there will be sort of uh, highly educated parts of the workforce where their jobs, I don't, some of the jobs may be done away with, but in large part will be redefined. And very analogous to the discussion we were just having about machine learning experts, we'll have the, you know, we'll see shortage in the, in the talent and older generations who are still active and seeking to be active members of the workforce kind of be put out of the labor market or no longer be qualified and require new training where they're, whether they're able to you know, gain the training and be as high a performer as someone who has been learning the, the particular skill, let's say medicine, um, in an in a AI paradigm from the get-go. So I think we'll see a shift in job definitions and a displacement of meaningful chunks of the highly trained workforce. And that has significant, I think, societal um, consequences as well as uh, economic consequences, which is why, you know, 
I think a form of um, guaranteed basic income um, is a worthy discussion, at least until that um, a generation of workers gets settled and the new, um, the new labor force um, that's highly trained in an AI-type paradigm comes into play. I also think that there will be many, many, many new jobs and professions that will be created that we have yet to think about or are able to imagine as a result. So I do not think that AI is a net negative in terms of um, creating higher unemployment or lower employment. It's not a net negative. I think, um, and McKinsey and many, many others have done um, studies on this. I think in the long term, um, we'll probably see more employment than not created as a result of AI. But at any point in time, as we look at the AI disruption and adoption over the next few decades, I think we will see, we'll see moments of pain and meaningful pain. Well, that's really interesting because um, in, in the United States, as an example, since the Industrial Revolution, unemployment has been between 5 and 9%, without fail, 5 to 9%, except the Great Depression, which nobody said was caused by technology. And if you think about that, 5 to 9%, and you think about an assembly line, an assembly line is, is AI. I mean, if you are making cars one at a time uh, in a garage, and then all of a sudden Henry Ford shows up, and he makes them 100 at a time and sells them for a tenth the price, and they're better, I mean, that is got to be like, oh my gosh, this, this, this AI, this technology just really upset all this enormous amount of people. And yet you never see unemployment go above 9% in this country. Um, and again, I, I will leave the, the predictions of, of the magnitude of the impact to, to the macroeconomists. No, I'm just curious. What, what, I will focus on startups, but I do think, so let me stick with that example. So you were sort of the artisanal shop and you were, I don't know, sewing by hand and then the machine comes along the, in, the, you know, in the factory line and now it's all automated and you and 10 others are displaced and so for every 10 of you who are working one is now in the on the factory line and the nine are finding themselves out of position there was that paradigm i was describing a minute ago with you know doctors and lawyers and other professions that where a lot of their functions will become automated or replaced by ai but then it's also the case that now their children or their grandchildren are studying outer space are you know are going into astronomy and other fields that we had never we might have somehow at, the, at a folklore level thought about but never sort of expected that would get there so new fields emerge the pain will be felt what do you do with a nine out of ten who are right there and then out of a position in the long term, if it, you know, I think in an AI paradigm, we'll see an, a lot and many, many more professions get created. Um, it's just about where you get caught in the cycle. Yeah, it's true. I mean, nobody, you, in 95, you never would have thought, boy, if you just connect a bunch of computers together with a common protocol and, you know, and make the web, you're going to have Google and eBay and Etsy. I mean, those are yeah. all these things we, so, Let's talk about startups for a minute. Do you have, you, you see a lot of proposals and then you make investments and then you help companies along. Do you have kind of, what, like what would you say are the, the most common mistakes that you're seeing startups make and, that, and, and do you have kind of just general advice 
for portfolio companies? Um, well, my portfolio company, companies get the advice in real time, but I think, I mean, especially for AI companies, to go back to how you opened this discussion, which was um, referencing a byline I had done for GigaOM, I think if a company truly does have artificial intelligence, uh, show it, and it's pretty easy to show. You show who, how your product leverages various learning techniques. You show who the people on your team are. Um, that are focusing on machine learning, but also how you, the founder, whether you are a technical founder or not, understand uh, the un you know the underpinnings of uh, of AI and of machine learning. And I think that's critical because so many companies are calling themselves something something dot AI, and it's very very similar and analogous to what we saw with big data. If you remember seven to 10 years ago, every company was big data. Every company is now AI because it's the hot buzzword. So rising above the noise while taking advantage of the wave is important, but meaningfully so because it's valuable to your business and because from the get-go you're taking advantage of machine learning and AI, not because it's the buzzword of the day that you think might get you money. The matter of fact is, for those of us who live and breathe um, AI and startups, I mean, we'll cut through the noise fairly quickly and pattern recognition and the number of deals we see in any given week is such that uh, the true AI capabilities will stand out. So that's one piece. I do think then also that for the companies and founders that truly are leveraging neural nets, truly are getting the software to outperform or, or hardware, whatever the product may be, um, that's leveraging the software to, outperf to outperform, um, the dynamics within um, the company have changed, right? Because we don't just have the technology team consisting of the developers and then sort of with a link to the product people. We now have this third leg, um, the machine learning or the data scientist people, and how product roadmap is driven, you know, are the product people driving it, and uh, the machine learning um, talent is coming up with techniques or coming up with models to help support it, or are they driving it, and product is turning it into a roadmap, and um, technology that developers are um, implementing it. It's a whole new dichotomy amongst these various groups. There are schools of thought, in fact, that say, no, machine learning experts, what's that? It's the developers who will also have machine learning um, expertise, and they will be the same people. I don't share that view. I think developers will have some level, level of fluency in machine learning AI, but I think we'll have succinct talent around it. So getting the culture right amongst those groups makes a very, very big difference to, to the outcome. And I think, I think it's still in the making, to be honest. So this, this may be an unanswerable question, but because it's too, too vague, but... Lucky me. I know. <laughs> Go ahead. But, no, that, that means... Um, so would, a, would two business plans come across your desk? And one of them is a company that says, we have access to data that nobody else has. And, and we can use this data to learn how to do something really well. And the other one says, we have algorithms that <laughs> are so awesome that they can do stuff that nobody else knows how to do. Which of those 
kind of do you pick up and read first? Wait, so scarcity. Uh, let's merge them. No, so I think ideally right. you'd like to have, <laughs> um, ideally you'd like to have both um, the algorithms or, or you know the neural nets and um, the data. If you really forced me to pick one, I'd pick the data. I think there is enough. Um, there are enough tools out there, and there's enough you know uh, TensorFlows and whatnot out there in the market that and in open source that I think you could probably work with those and build on top of them data becomes a big differentiator. I think of data, Byron, today as we used to think of patents back in the day, which is, and then the role of patents is, is an interesting topic because um, with execution, they've taken second or third seat as a barrier to entry. And, but back in you know, 10, 15 years ago, patterns mattered a lot more. I think data can give you that kind of better, uh, barrier to entry and even more so. That big data. So it is an answerable question at big data. Um, actually, my, my very next question was the role of patents in this world because it doesn't, doesn't the world change so quickly that, that just that whole idea, and plus you have to disclose them. I mean, like, would you advise people more to just keep them as trade secrets or, or kind of how do, you, how do you think about companies that develop a, a technology uh, being able to protect and utilize that? I think I think your question depends a bit uh, as well as to sort of what what facet of technology are we talking about or what not what part of the market I think in the life sciences um, they still matter quite a bit an area that I don't know um, as much about for sure um, I think in technology their role has diminished um, although still relevant I do I cannot think of a company that became big and uh, you know market leader because they had patents so i think they are an important facet and but it is not the make all and break you know break all in terms of um must have in my view they are a nice to have i think where where one pauses is um if the immediate competitor has a healthy body of patents then then you think a bit more about that as far as the question around or the trade off between um, patents and trade secrets. I think there is a moment in time when one files the patent, especially if secrecy matters. At the end of the day, though, and this may be ironic given that we're talking about artificial intelligence, startups, much like any other facet of our lives, um, matter on excellence of execution and, um, and people. People can make or break you. So uh, when you ask me about the various startups that I see and you talk about the business plan, I never think of them as the business plan. I always think of them in the context of who are the founders, who are the, you know, the team members, the management team. So team first, market timing for what they're going after because you could have the right execution or the right product but the wrong market timing. And then, of course, the, what problem are they solving and how are they taking advantage of AI? But people matter. So to come back to your question, patterns are one more area that a startup can um, build defensibility, but not the end all and be all by any stretch and diminished role, in fact. How do you think the mix, how, how do you think startups have changed in the last five or 10 years? Like, are, are they able to do more early? And, or are they demographically different? Are they younger, are they older? Are they, I mean, how do you think that the yeah. ecosystem evolves in a world where we have all these amazing platforms that you can, you know, access for free? 
Yeah, I think I think we've seen a shift. I mean, you you referenced earlier the web with the emergence of the web back in what is it 1989. Um, we saw digital and um, and e-commerce and you know, martech and uh, entire new markets get um, get created. And in that world of what I've called not just pure technology businesses but tech-enabled businesses, um, we we saw a shift both in younger demographics um, and startups funded by founded by younger entrepreneurs, but also um, more diversity in terms of gender and backgrounds as well. In that, not everybody needed to have a computer science degree or engineering degree to be able to launch a tech or tech-enabled company. I think that became even more prevalent and emphasized in the more recent wave that we're just sort of on the, on the completion side of with social mobile. I mean, the apps, uh, universe, and ecosystems, they were, you know, it's two 20-year-olds, right? It's not the three-time um, entrepreneur, gray-headed. So we absolutely saw a demographic shift. And I think with a, in this AI paradigm, I think we'll see we'll see a healthy mixture. We'll see the uh, researcher and the um, true machine learning expert who is not quite 20 but not quite 40 either. So a bit more maturity, and then we'll see the very young co-founder or the very experienced co-founder. So, but I, th I think we'll see a um, a mix of demographics and age groups, which is the best. I mean, again, we're in a business of the diversity of thought and creativity that's uh, we're we're looking for that person who is reimagined uh, taking advantage of the tools taking advantage of innovation and what's out there to reimagine the world and deliver a new experience or product you know i i, I was thinking it's a great time to be uh, like a university professor in these topics because all of a sudden they, they are finding themselves courted right and left because they have just long time deep knowledge and and what everybody else is trying to catch up on. I would um, agree, but I think, sorry if I may, uh, keep in mind though that there is a, a, quite a bit of a chasm between teaching a topic and actually commercializing um, in that regard. So I think the professors who are able to cross that chasm, not to sound too Jeffrey Morris, but um, are the ones that, yes, they're, they're in the right field and in the right moment in time. Otherwise, their students or the talent that is knowledgeable enough those PhDs, but that don't quite go into academia, but are actually going into commercialization, execution, implementation. That's the talent that we're in quite in high demand for. So my last question is um, is kind of a, a how big can this be? Because if you think about if you're a salesperson, like you said, and you have a bunch of leads, and and you just use your gut and pick one and work that one, or you have, you have data that informs it and, and makes you better. If you're an HR person and you, you hire uh, people more suited to the job than you would have before. If you're a CEO and you make better decisions about something, if you're a driver and you can get to the place quicker. I mean, when you add all of that up across uh, an entire world of, of inefficiency, so you kind of imagine this world where on, the, on one end of the spectrum, we all just kind of stumble through lives like drunken sailors on shore leave, just kind of randomly <laughs> making decisions, you know, based on what, how we feel. And then you think of this other world where we have 
all of this data and it's all informed and we make the best decision all the time. Where do you think we are? Are we way over at the wandering around and this is going to get us over to the other side or like how big of an impact is this? Could this, could artificial intelligence double GNP in the United States? And how would you, how would you say how big can it be? <laughs> um, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know, but I don't think we live in a binary world that like everything else is going to be a matter of shades. I think um, we, we've driven productivity and efficiency historically to entirely new levels, but I don't think we have any more free time because we find other ways to occupy ourselves, even in our roles. I mean, you know, we have mobile phones now, we have, uh, you, you know, from a legacy perspective, laptops, computers, and uh, whatnot, and yet somehow I don't find myself vacationing on the beach, quite the contrary, uh, more swamped than ever. So I, I think we have to be careful about, if I understood your question correctly, we have to be careful about translating technology into, oh, it will take care of everything and we'll just kind of float around a bit dumber, a bit freer and whatnot. I think I think we'll find our way, different ways to um, reshape societal norms, not in a bad way, but in a what constitutes work, possibly explore new areas that we didn't think um, were possible before. Um, I think, but I think we'll, it's not necessarily about, we'll gain efficiencies, but I think we will use that time, not in a um, unproductive way or not in a leisurely way, but I think to explore um, other markets, other, other facets of life that we may or may not have imagined. And I'm sorry for giving you a, such a high level question and not making it more concrete. I think productivity from technology has been something that's been, as you well know, very, very hard to measure. There have been, uh, we know anecdotally that it has had an impact and it's driven productivity, but there are entire um, groups of macroeconomists who actually not only can they not measure it, but they don't believe it's driven productivity. So um, it will have a fundamental transformative impact, whether we are able to measure it uh, from a, you've defined it as GMP, but I'm defining it from a productivity point of view or not, remains to be seen whether, and some would argue, as I said, because it's not productive, I would throw the, the thought out there, the idea out there, or, the, or because the traditional methodologies of measuring uh, productivity do not account for technological impact. So maybe we need to look at how we're defining productivity. All right. I don't well, know if I answered your question. No, 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 that, that, that's good. You know, I mean, we, we, the idea that technology hasn't increased our standard of living, I don't think kind of, I mean, we live, I live a more, much more leisurely life than my great grandparents, not because I work any harder than them, but because I have technology in my life. Um, and because I use that technology to make me more productive. So, I mean, I, I know the stuff you're referring to where it's like, we got all these computers in the office and, uh, you know, worker productivity doesn't seem to, to just be shooting through the roof, but, um, well, I, I don't know. Um, well, let's leave it there. Uh, actually, I do have a, kind of a final question. So you said you have a four-year-old daughter. Are you optimistic overall about the world she's going to grow up in that, with, with these technologies? Are My gosh, you, we're going into a shrink session. Uh, no, no, I mean... <laughs> no, I know what you mean. Are, okay. are you an optimist or a pessimist about the future? 
I so apparently I've just learned um, in the spirit of sharing information with you and all your listeners. Now um, I've just learned that my age group falls into something called the Xennials, where we are very cynical, like Generation X. But optimists, optimists like the millennials. So I'm not sure what to make of that. I would call it an interesting hybrid. I am very optimistic about my daughter's future, though, and I think I think of it as, uh, you know, the today's twenty-somethings are, are digital natives, and today's ten-year-olds and, and you know later are. Um, mobile natives, and my daughter is going to be an AI native, and what an amazing moment in time for her to be living um, in this world, and what um, the opportunities she will have, and the world she will explore in this planet, and goodness, beyond, I think um, I think will be fascinating. Uh, I do hope that somewhere in the process, we manage to find a bit more peace and not destroy each other, but short of that, I think I'm I'm quite optimistic about the future that lies ahead. All righty. Well, let's leave it at that. I want to thank you for an absolutely fascinating hour. This has been, um, we touched on so many things and I just thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks again for having me. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, I host another podcast about artificial intelligence. It's a daily podcast called The AI Minute. And every day it's a minute or two of reflections about artificial intelligence. It's available wherever you find your podcasts of choice. But in addition, it's an Alexa skill, so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.